But I, I heard a funny story recently about a child who uh, was getting picked on every day at school, and so he decided finally to stand up to the bully, and he punched him. And uh, the principal broke up the fight, called the boy's parents, and they sat him down and said, now, son, you know that two wrongs don't make a right, don't you? And the boy thought about it for a minute before replying, then how many does it take? <laughs> As Christians, we know, of course, that no number of wrongs makes a right. Jesus not only taught us, but he modeled for us, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And yet, if you look in your bulletin, sermon title there, what I'm trying to emphasize with this whole four wrongs can make a right is not that wrongdoing is ever justified or that multiple sins can somehow cancel one another out, but rather, as we study our way through Genesis chapter 27 this morning, and that's where we're going to be, for those of you who have your Bibles and want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one of those too at the info bar, you guessed it. Um, but Genesis 27, and then we're going to spill over into the first bit of chapter 28. Uh, the, the point of this passage, I think, is to reassure us that we serve a sovereign God who has a plan, who has a good plan, a right plan, and that no amount of wrongs on our part could ever thwart God's good plan. That's, that's the point of Genesis 27. Now, that doesn't excuse our sin. The Bible clearly states that we should never use God's uh, redemptive power, God's ability to take evil and turn it, use it for good, or God's infinite grace, as we just sang about. We should never use that as an excuse for sin. That's Romans chapter 6. What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may abound by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And yet, again, the point of this passage, I think, is that when we do sin, when we mess up again, fall short again, slip up into the old, same old habits we struggle with, that we can take comfort this morning. We can rest in the blessed assurance that you and I do not have the power to derail God's sovereign good purposes for your life if you love him and have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Daniel 4.35 says, God does according to his will, none can stay his hand. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes, says the Lord. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of, you guessed it, his will, etc., etc. You get the point, the picture you cannot, I cannot, we cannot foil God's good plans. Again, doesn't make our sin right. Just means that God's right trumps your wrong. Amen? That's the good news that we just sang about this morning. His grace is greater than all our sin. It trumps it. If I can use that as a verb anymore. We're going to see that on full display this morning. In Genesis 27, specifically 
I'll give you the rest of your outline. We're going to meet four problem children in this passage. This passage is all about family dynamics, okay? I know it's Mother's Day, so here's a good family-oriented sermon for you. But this is one seriously dysfunctional family we're going to meet, okay? Any of y'all come from pretty messed up families? You're not going to admit it on Mother's Day. But if you do, you're in good company, all right? Because I'm not just talking about myself. The family of faith here, God's chosen family, Abraham's family, Isaac's family, now his son, we're going to turn in in the story, Jacob, that family was seriously dysfunctional. So yes, there is hope even for our messed up families as well. But even more than any biological nuclear family this morning, and by the way, let's get this out of the way, contrary to uh, the illustrations in your children's Bible growing up, um, Jacob and Esau are not teenagers in this story. They're 77 years old. Isaac, their father, was 137, thought he was on his deathbed. He's going to live another Thirty-three, 43 years or something. So, but they're 77 years old, so don't give them too much grace as you hear about all this dysfunction. They should know better. But this story is really more about the family of God than anything. They are representatives of us. Even Isaac, who's 137, he's still a child, a child of God, a problem child of God. Four problem children we're going to meet, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning focusing on them and their sin because that's where the passage focuses most of its attention. I know that sometimes we might like to just sort of quickly gloss over the bad, you know, our sin so we can get to the grace that's greater than it, but if we're going to be true to Scripture, if we're going to put the emphasis where Scripture does, then we cannot just, you know, skirt over the massive problem that is our sin. We've got to deal with it. Actually, we don't. (laughs) Praise God that he has. Genesis 27 is full of sin, and guess what? So are you. So are you. So am I. We are full of sin. And so we see that in this story, we are Isaac. We are Jacob. We are Rebekah and Esau. We are God's problem children in desperate need of grace. And so we're going to read ourselves into the story, and we're going to see as we do, got to wait for it, the good news toward the end of the passage, that despite their sin, despite our sin, once again, God renews his covenant promises, three unchanging promises that he has made to his problem children in spite of our sin, which invites us to respond in one of two ways two diverging paths that you and I can choose in response to God's great grace, all of which ultimately falls within one divine plan, God's sovereign plan. And so that's your outline, four problem children, three promises, two paths, one plan. Got it? All right. If, if you would then stand with me as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word, We're going to be, as I said, start in chapter 27 of Genesis, go all the way till chapter 28, verse 9. It's kind of a long passage, so stretch your legs. But hear the word of the Lord. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. 
I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. You go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves, so that you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me. My son, only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house. She put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goat she put on his hands, on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so he went into his father and said, my father, <clears throat> my father, and he said, here I am, who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me, now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, uh, because the Lord, your God, granted me success. And Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, hmm, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, and so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so Jacob brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Probably helped the problem a little. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. And so he came near and kissed him. Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, and he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game. 
that you may bless me. He's a big, burly, hairy man. His father, Isaac, said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all of it before you came, and I blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully. He's taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? Heel grabber, supplanter, deceiver. For he has cheated me these two times now. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I've made him lord over you, and all his brothers I've given to him as servants. With grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing? My father, bless me, even me also, me, my father. Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So Isaac, his father, answered him and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, and so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice again. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns from you. He'll forget what you've done, and then I will send, and I'll bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Badan Aram, to Laban, to the son of Bethuel the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob, sent him away to take a wife from Padan Aram, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. And so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael, to Ishmael, and took as his wife, besides the wives he already had, Mehalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. God, your word itself tells us that 
It's a, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to pierce through us, help us discern right from wrong, help us discern our sin from, from your good calling and your Holy Spirit in our life. Father, would you now, just as you, through your Holy Spirit, inspired these words thousands of years ago, would you come be with us again, Holy Spirit? Would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts, our souls? We bear our souls before you this morning. We submit ourselves under the authority of your word. Would you use it to convict us of sin, but to, to compel us toward your grace, even as we feel the sting of sin this morning, of conviction of our guilt, would you also reveal to us Jesus, our Savior, who stands with open arms, ready to save, if we will but turn to him. That's what we need. That's what we ask for and pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we start with four problem children. Four problem children. First, there's Isaac. And Isaac's sin, Isaac's problem is that he's worldly. Isaac is worldly, and I say that for four reasons. Number one, we know that Isaac favored Esau, even though God himself had already uh, blessed Jacob, revealed to Rebekah way back in chapter 25, before they were born 77 years ago, God had revealed that Esau must serve Jacob, that God's chosen line would go through Jacob. And nevertheless, we hear that Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Why? We're told it's because Isaac ate of his game. Esau was that burly, manly hunter, and Isaac loved meat. It's that simple. Which raises a second reason for my allegation that Isaac is, is worldly, and that is number two, Isaac was indulgent. He pursued, these are sub-bullet points I'm under number one there. He, he was indulgent. He pursued the gratification of desire. Isaac lived for worldly pleasure. Now, lest we think that God has something against carnivores, I would just remind you back in Genesis chapter 4, Cain was the one with the green thumb. And his brother, Abel, kept the livestock. And yet God chose Cain and Abel and rejected Cain. And so the point is not that God loves farmers and hates ranchers or vice versa. Actually, the point is that God's sovereign choice of who he favors and blesses is not a result of hunting or farming or any works on our part, lest anyone should boast. Right? You, you cannot do anything to make God love you any more or any less than he does today because Here's the truth. God doesn't love you because of you. God loves you in spite of you because of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Isaac, on the other hand, he plays favorites. He picks favorites because he liked Esau's food better. That's the kind of father he is. Chapter 27, verse 3, he says, Go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat it. He's indulgent. Philippians 3.19 in the New Testament warns those whose God is their belly, whose minds are set on earthly things, that their end will be destruction. That's Isaac. He loved a good steak, and he loved the son who killed it and brought it to him more than he loved the things of God, the plan of God, the chosen heir of God, Jacob. 
Number three, third reason that I, I, I say that Isaac is worldly is that his decisions are rooted in his feelings, not in his faith. It's not just his taste buds. Look back at all of the sensory language used of Isaac in this passage. Verse 1, his, he was old and his eyes were dim, so he could not see. And that's the whole reason Isaac's in this mess in the first place. He's used to living by sight, not by faith, as Hebrews 11 calls us to. And so when he loses his sight, he's in big trouble. Verse 4, he says, I want to taste delicious food. Verse 21, he says, come near that I, I may feel you, my son. His, his sense of touch. He says, uh, verse 22, the voice is Jacob's voice. So that's his sense of hearing. You got all five senses here. He says, but the, the hands are the hands of Esau. Touch again. Verse 26, come near and kiss me, my son. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him, said, see, uh, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. And speaking of smells, Isaac reeks of worldliness. He lives not by faith, but by what he can taste and see and touch and hear and smell. And by the way, I just point out, related here, this, is, this was the, 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 the mantra of the first wave of Enlightenment skepticism in the early 17th, 18th centuries. Locke, Berkeley, Hume, the rise of empiricism, this idea that all knowledge is derived from, must be based in sensory experience, that's Isaac. It's the beginning of sort of the drift into secularism, away from faith and into, you know, what, what I can see and taste and experience. Lastly, number four, Isaac is worldly because based on the way that he feels, his preference for Esau and his faulty belief that Jacob really is Esau, that's the problem, see, with trusting your feelings. Our feelings deceive us all the time. You understand that, right, friends? Your feelings will deceive you all the time. And yet because Isaac trusts his feelings more than his God, he attempts, albeit unsuccessfully, but he attempts nevertheless to bless Esau, the son that God had rejected instead of blessing God's chosen son, Jacob. Isaac is defiant, rebellious. He just flat out chooses his way, his preferred son, over God's way and God's plan. And we should note, by the way, that Isaac's blessing itself there in verses 28 and 29, it also reeks of worldliness. He says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Essentially, he says, uh, Esau, I think you're Esau. Esau, may God bless you with the life of indulgence too, my son. May you be like me and, you know, have lots of food to enjoy and lots of wine to enjoy. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. See, this is the world's version of blessing. Jesus said that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, not in my kingdom. He says, whoever would be great among you, my followers, must be servants. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all, for even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you, friends. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Jesus gave his life for you, for me, on the cross. 
He died the death that we deserve so that we could be made right with God. That's the gospel, again. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus blessed people who would follow in his footsteps. The meek, the servant-hearted, the humble. They shall inherit the earth, he says. Isaac, on the other hand, blesses the strong, the dominant, the manly men. The Esau's of the world, may they be blessed, may they be bowed down to. So let's apply all of this to us now. Let's make this personal in our lives. What about you? Are you an Isaac? Do you love what God loves or do you love more the things of the world? Are you indulgent? Do you just live for a good steak, for a good cup of coffee? for a good glass of wine? Do you live for a good party, for a good time sexually, for a good fill-in-the-blank with whatever your worldly pleasure of choice is? Do you live for that? It's not that these things are inherently bad. God is the giver of all good gifts. The problem is when we fall in love with the gifts instead of the giver. That's called idolatry. Idolatry is when a good thing becomes the main thing to you. Is that you? Do you live by your feelings instead of by faith? Have you bought into the world's lie that you should follow your heart and just trust your gut instead of following Jesus and trusting him? Have you bought into the world's version of success, plenty of grain and wine, cars and clothes and a big house, people serving you, you're the head boss, ordering people around. Instead of Jesus' version of success, take up your cross, die to yourself daily to serve me and serve others. Are you an Isaac? Or perhaps, number two, you're a Rebecca. Rebecca is opportunistic. Opportunism is defined as adapting one's actions to expediency or effectiveness regardless of the sacrifice of ethical principles. That pretty much fits Rebecca to a T, doesn't it? The ends justify the means. That's Rebecca's mantra. Unlike Isaac, Rebecca actually is on board with God's plan. God's choice of Jacob. The problem is she's just not content to trust God to accomplish it in his own timing, in his own righteous way. She thinks she's got to take matters into her own hands, and so that's what she does. She's good with God's will, but not God's way. That's, important. that's an important distinction that you all need to know this morning, friends. It's not enough that you're on board with God's will. You've got to do it God's way. The ends do not justify the means, but Rebecca thinks they do. She's the one in verses 5 through 10 who hatches this whole plan to deceive dad. She is even willing to take the fall for it. Verse 13, she says, let your curse be on me, my son. If things go south here, I'll take the blame. So long as her will, her plan will be done. She says, only obey my voice, not the Lord's voice. Don't, you know, it's not Son, you know, go and pray about it and see what God, God, direction God gives. It's obey my voice. 
It's all about my plan. She's got to be in the driver's seat. And she is in the story. Reread verses 14 through 17 and just listen to how active she is. It says, his mother prepared the delicious food. Then Rebecca took the best garments of Esau and she put them on Jacob. 77 years old, can't dress himself, right? She, you want to talk about a control freak. You think your mom, Mother's Day, is controlling... Rebecca, right? She put them on Jacob. The skins of the young goat she put on his hands, and she put delicious food and bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. She takes charge of everything. Again, make this personal. Maybe that's you. Do you really like, do you need to be in the driver's seat of your own life? Or have you surrendered your life by faith to a God who knows far better than you do what is best for you, and is actually able to accomplish that if you'll let him. Do, do you keep trying to yank the steering wheel back out of his hand? Are you opportunistic? Do the ends justify the means for you? Are you willing to do whatever it takes, honestly, to ensure that your plan in any given scenario is the thing that comes to fruition, instead of simply doing what's right and then trusting God with the results, come what may? If, if you want to think about these four problem children in terms of uh, the four root idols that Tim Keller outlines for us in his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I know we've referenced from the sermon many times, done, I think, Bible studies here on it, uh, Sunday classes. But, uh, uh, Isaac, if Isaac's root idol is comfort, right? Isaac's all about those creature comforts, then Rebecca's is control. Is that you? Are you a control freak? Would, would those who know you best... Maybe they wouldn't on Mother's Day. But would those who know you best describe you honestly as a control freak? Or perhaps number three, you're a Jacob. I'm just going to hit all the sins today. Uh, you know, we're going to find your root idol. Are you a Jacob? Jacob's root idol is approval. Approval. And his sin of choice, therefore, is hypocrisy. Jacob is a hypocrite. He's hypocritical. Our English word, hypocrite, comes from a term used way back in ancient Greece in the world of the theater to refer to an actor who wears a mask in order to pretend to be someone they're not. It essentially means you're two-faced. That's Jacob. You know, we often label him as a deceiver, deceptive, but if you actually reread the story, you, you realize, again, Rebecca is the one who's really plotting and driving the deception here. Jacob just sort of goes along with it, even passively, even reluctantly. Verses 11 and 12 make Jacob sound like he really doesn't like this plan. He's afraid he's going to get caught, and his father's going to disapprove of him even more. Verse 12, he might curse me. My guess is that Jacob's decision to capitulate, to go along with it anyway, is really more about appeasing his mother, Rebecca, about winning, about keeping her approval. Because, hey, if daddy doesn't love you, you better keep mommy happy. And if we could just go there for a minute, I know it's Mother's Day. We love y'all too, moms. But listen, at the end of the day, every man desperately wants his father's approval. I don't know, I can't remember which psychoanalyst it was that, that said that. I know Freud was the weird mommy stuff, but it's, it's true. Whoever said it, it's true. Every man deep down wants his father's approval, his father's blessing. And maybe he's even willing to lie to get it. Like Jacob, 
to pretend to be someone you're not to win your father's approval. And if you still can't get it, if you still can't please dad, maybe you make moral concessions in order to win others' approval as a substitute instead. Is that you? Is that you this morning? I want to point out here, if it is, for you people pleasers like Jacob, that what starts as little concessions here and there over time eventually becomes a way of life. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Speaking of Hippocrates and acting, I can't help but think here the, 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 the you know, sad picture illustration that came to me this week was one of my favorite actors, the late Heath Ledger. His portrayal of the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight is arguably the best performance by any actor of all time. But did you know why? Did you know the backstory to that character, that, that performance? Ledger was a method actor, and so he literally lived as the Joker for months, living up to and during the production of the movie. He locked himself in an isolated motel room for months and read nothing but Batman comic books about his character in order to get fully immersed in the Joker's headspace. And it won him an Oscar. And it cost him his life. He committed suicide. He became totally unhinged. He lost all sense of self. He didn't even know who he was anymore. Friends, wearing a mask can be dangerous. It may start with a few compromises here and there to play the part, but you end up losing yourself somewhere along the way and selling out in the service of pleasing others. In Jacob's case, he played the part so well. He committed to the role so much so. He was even willing to bring God into his lie. You caught that in verse 20. Isaac said, how is it that you found the meat so quickly, my son? And Jacob answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. And I just imagine Jacob bracing for the lightning you know, to strike him dead on the spot. Are you a Jacob? Are you a people pleaser? Do you wear a mask to win the approval of others? Do you want it? Do you need it more than you desire the approval of the Lord? Proverbs 29, 25 warns us, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Do you know that? Fearing man, trying to please man, it's a trap. It's a, you'll, never, you'll never get what you're, it's an endless bottomless pit in your heart. But whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever seeks to please him, safe. The Apostle Paul wrote, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Is being a Christian win you brownie points in this world anymore? If you're trying to please Christ, I mean, Paul says, I don't need to wear a mask. I don't need to pretend to be someone I'm not. I don't need to hide all my flaws, to sweep them under the rug in order to win your approval. He says, because unlike man, God, 1 Samuel 16, 7, looks not on the outward appearance, the mask. God looks on where? The heart. But Paul says, even though he looks, God knows the depths of my heart. God knows the depths of my sin. And guess what? He loves me anyway. And so I don't need your approval I don't even need dad's approval anymore. 
my God, my heavenly Father, he loves me just the way I am. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to dress your sin up. Do you know that this morning? West County Church, in your fancy Mother's Day clothes, do you know spiritually that you do not need to dress your sin up for God? That actually robs God of the glory that he gets from showing undeserved grace to wretched sinners like you and me. That the more sinful you can admit that you are, the more amazing it is that God could love even a sinner like you, like me. That Jesus' sacrifice could actually cover, atone for our sin, to save us. Again, this doesn't mean that you go out and you look for ways to sin so that grace may abound. Listen, you have got plenty of sin, I assure you. Plenty of sin already. But do you acknowledge it? Just confess it. Throw yourself on his mercy this morning. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's who? It's the sick. Dennis is sick. I'm sick. Get those hands up. Is that you? Are you crying out for the cure this morning? Have you done that? Or like Jacob, are you still reaching for a mask to try and hide behind the empty approval of others? Lastly, number four, Esau is self-centered. He falls prey to Keller's fourth root idol, power. Power is a longing for influence or recognition. Esau wants to be important. Esau just wants to matter. <laughs> it's got to be hard to be Esau a little bit. He wants power to be important, to matter. With Esau, it's all about him. What that desire will do is it will make you totally self-absorbed, totally self-centered. And we're not going to reread the whole passage there, verses 30 through 38, but you can go back and you can count how many times Esau uses the pronouns I, me, my. I count 14 times in nine verses. Let my father arise. Bless me. Bless me. Even me. Also, my father. Jacob cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now he's taking away my blessing. Don't you have a blessing for me, father? Bless me. Even me also, he repeats. I, me, my. I, me, my. It's all about Esau. He doesn't care about God's plan. He doesn't care about God's will, God's way. Esau is totally self-absorbed, self-centered, to the point, verse 41, that he's ready to kill God's chosen, appointed heir. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him, and so he said to himself, the days of my mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Jacob's mere existence is a constant reminder that Esau can't have everything he wants. That he's not the center of the universe. How about you? Make it personal again. Do you struggle with self-centeredness? That's a really dumb question. Yes, you do. If you are human, I trust you're all human this morning. That means you're a sinner, Romans 3. And self-centeredness is the root of all sin. You think about it, right? Pride. What is pride? Pride is thinking more highly of who? Yourself than others. Greed. Wanting to accumulate more for who? Myself. 
envy, wanting something else that someone else has for yourself. Stealing, acting on that desire and taking it for yourself. Lying, believing that only you really deserve the truth. Lust, objectifying others for your own personal pleasure. Even faithless, disbelief, mistrust of God, trusting yourself. I I trust my own brain to figure things out. I'm, I'm too smart to believe in God. You can go down the list. Every sin ultimately comes back to this one of self-centeredness. You know, as, the, as the old joke goes, what's in the middle of sin? I. I am. I, I am in the middle of sin. Some of you all get that later at brunch. <laughs> Spell it out. Okay, so you've got a worldly father choosing comfort whose God is his belly. You've got an opportunistic mother who wants control, and her God is her plan. In her mind, you've got a hypocritical younger son uh, who desperately seeks approval. His God is his reputation, his image, uh, the image of him in other people's minds. And then you've got a self-centered older son who needs to feel important. His God is himself. And so God looks down on that family and says, yeah, I can work with that. Actually, you know what? This is, this is going to make for a great story. Because I can prove that I can work my will, my purposes, out of even that dumpster fire of a family. When I prove that my power to overcome your sin, to redeem your brokenness, is stronger than any family dysfunction, any marital strife, any sibling rivalry, anything you can throw my way, God says, that is exactly the family I'm choosing, the kinds of problem children that I choose. Moses, the guy with the speech impediment, to be my mouthpiece, my spokesman. David, the youngest, smallest, most disrespected, you know, poor shepherd, to lead my nation because I exalt the humbled, tax collectors and prostitutes, that's who Jesus hung out with, poor, illiterate, uneducated fishermen, the dregs of society. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's 1 Corinthians 1. You need to be warned this morning. West County church attender, pretty, wealthy, strong, wise, got it together. You need to be, be careful. Jesus came for the weak. He came for the poor. He came for the broken. He came for those who don't have it all together and can admit that and bring their brokenness to him and cry out for the cure. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And to people like that, to that family, through that family, God reiterates and God continues to work his three unchanging promises made first to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, then repeated to his son Isaac last week in chapter 26, and now offered to Jacob in chapter 28 as well. We'll do these quickly. Uh, A people, a place, and a pledge. Those verses one through five here. Promises, once again, a people, a place, and a pledge. First, you've got verses 1 through 3. Isaac finally does the right thing. He calls Jacob and he blesses him. He directs him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, the house of Bethuel. Take as a wife from there one of the daughters of Laban. 
God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of many peoples. What's happening? This is God actually using sin, Esau's, the, the, the sin of the whole situation. God is using, but especially Esau's wanting to murder Jacob. He uses that to send him away, to find him a wife that's going to help him accomplish God's purpose and God's plan for his life to make him a father of all of Israel. That's the kind of God we serve. Your sin cannot thwart his plan. He, he takes it and he uses it. He works it into the plan. Verse 4, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Again, that's the, God's promise of a place. So you got people in place. The land of Canaan. He says, I'm going to bring you back in to take possession of the land. And then finally, verse 4, May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. That's God's pledge, his pledge of blessing. So one day, I'm going to bless all people through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through this broken family and all your mess, through Rahab and, and Tamar and, and all sorts of brokenness in, his, in the family line. And I'm going to prove that no brokenness and no family line and no amount of dysfunction can prevent my uh, path and, and plan from prevailing, that ultimately I'm going to bring out of that family Jesus, the promised Messiah, through this kind of a family line. But God's good promises still leave us, leave Jacob and Esau, leave you and me with two potential paths. There's the path of obedience and there's the path of disobedience. There's the path of Jacob and the path of Esau. Listen, Jacob was far from perfect. We all seen that already. But when it's crunch time, in the moment of truth, when the chips are on the table, when it really counts, Jacob comes through. Like his father Isaac, who comes around and blesses Jacob like he's supposed to, like his grandfather Abraham, who failed countless times. Abraham screwed up so many times. We saw that in, in the week's leading up to this, and yet when it mattered most on the top of Mount Moriah with a knife in his hand, Abraham passed the most important test of faith. And similarly here, when it's crunch time, when his entire future, his life is on the line. Listen, I don't care if you're 77 years old, to be kicked in those days, 4,000 years ago, to be kicked out of your tribe, your people, just sent out in the desert, good luck. That's like a death sentence. You needed community, especially then. But Jacob trusts God to provide, and he obeys. In verse 5, he goes to Padan Aram, whereas Esau, who also struggles with the idol of approval, apparently, right? Esau, here in, in verse 8, we hear, and his attempt to please his father when he discovers that, uh-oh, Canaanite wives are bad. Too, bad. too bad I've already married two of them. Back in chapter 26, not one, but two uh, bad wives. What does he do to try and make up for it? He, he decides to take a third wife, this time from Ishmael's family, from Isaac's rival, rejected brother. Esau is like the, the kid who accidentally marks on the wall and then decides he's going to make it better by painting the whole thing for you. This is Esau. He just makes things worse. He slides farther into disobedience, doing things his way instead of following the will of God. 
And the same still holds true today, friends. God's good promises to you today are unchanging. It's the same three promises. Better, though. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us Jesus offers us better promises today. He, he calls you into a better people, the family of, of faith, the church. He makes you a better pledge of blessing, the, the forgiveness of all your sins, eternal life in a better place. Heaven, all the splendors of paradise can be yours. But you too have to make a decision. Are you going to obey or disobey? How will you respond to God's promises and God's invitation on your life this morning? The Bible commands obedience. God commands, Acts 17.30, God commands all people everywhere to repent and to turn to Jesus in faith. Will you obey that command? Will you repent of your sins, turn from them, and turn to Jesus for salvation? If you have, if you will this morning, repent and believe, you will be saved. It's the gospel. But all of this, four wrongs, somehow made into a right, four broken, screwed up, problem children, redeemed and used to accomplish the very sovereign plan of God. How does that happen? It all does hinge on that central doctrine, that truth that God is sovereign. That's, that's the one plan. God is sovereign. His will will prevail. God really does work all things according to the counsel of his will. Even our sin, he even takes your sin and works it according to the counsel of his will. Praise God this morning that his grace really is greater than all our sin, that God's faithfulness really is greater than all your faithlessness, that though your sins, they really are many, praise God that his mercy is more. Amen? Let's pray. Friends, I want to give you a moment now to do just that, to respond. You've got one of two ways, obedience or disbelief, disobedience. Tearing your, your, your garments and throwing yourselves at the foot of the cross on the mercy of a Savior and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or to harden your heart and reject him. I will leave that up to the Holy Spirit right now to convict you, to draw you. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you do a work through your word in the hearts of your people this morning? Would you take a moment to respond to the gospel that you've heard proclaimed as the Holy Spirit leads you right now? Take just a moment.